Hiya, Duncan Green here with the latest roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. For the last couple of weeks, I've been um, running this fantastic series from researchers in the Congo called the Bukavu series. Um, I took a break this week, although I've still got a couple more before I finish, um, because I just got sent all these really great guest posts from people um, over the previous few weeks. So I just thought I'd better get those out so that they don't um, pass their sell-by date. So let me talk you through those. I actually began the week with a traditional links I liked. Um, I won't pick out many, but there's one in particular. Every year, I really enjoy the Ig Nobel Prizes, which are um, a spoof on the Nobel Prizes. And they're uh, sort of wacky and interesting research. And um, this year's prizes, um, they're always worth looking at. One uh, found that obesity is highly correlated with national corruption. The Physics Prize honoured research that explained why pedestrians are not constantly colliding. And then another prize, I think it must have been biology, um, found that rhinos are best transported upside down. So they do identify some really bizarre form kinds of research. And I always find it very, very enjoyable to read what the Ig Nobles have um, come up with this year. The second post of the week, rather more seriously, was um, an anonymous post. I think it's probably the first anonymous post I've had. Uh, and the reason why it was anonymous was uh, it's a friend who works on Myanmar. And right now, <clears throat> if you work on Myanmar, you want to keep your head down because you don't want to get people into trouble there, um, partners, friends, whatever. So this was an anonymous post. And it was about how can outsiders support civil society in Myanmar right now? Um, and it draws on a bunch of uh, papers uh, which have been uh, produced, which are, are being circulated. Um, and I'll just read out some of the stuff that this person has written. In a fast-moving, violent crisis like the one in Myanmar, a lot of the most interesting analysis goes unpublished for obvious reasons. The safety of individuals or organisations. I've been working with a suitably anonymous national and international team on a series of papers based on consultations with civil society organisations, CSOs, and community-based organisations, CBOs, and providing guidance to development partners, like the aid agencies, on what outsiders can do to help. So the first question uh, the, the, the post tries to answer is, to whom are communities turning for support? Communities are turning inward and relying even more on mutual support and self-reliance. As a result of the coup, new groups have supplemented established support systems, including Gen Z volunteers, informal networks such as unions, CBOs and village leaders, and groups or individuals no longer working for their previous organisations but continuing to offer informal support. Communities are often purposefully boycotting already weak public services as part of their resistance to the coup. Many community members do not want to access support from the State Administration Council, the SAC, which is the name of the, the military government has adopted, while a substantial proportion of international NGOs and civil society organisation programmes are on hold or operating at reduced capacity. CSOs also report that communities are less receptive to outside support due to an atmosphere of fear and mistrust. For example, some fearing that it would put them under suspicion of supporting civil disobedience movements. Others distrust outsiders because they assume that any organisation that can continue operating must be engaging with the SAC, the, the military government. People are stuck between the implications of being seen as either SAC or the opposition, both with potential consequences for their personal security. So how are CSOs responding in this situation of fragmentation and mistrust? The impacts of the coup include the following. 
Constraints imposed by the military government are resulting in reduced levels of activity and an estimated 20% of CSOs closing down. Some constraints are affecting everyone, such as severe banking constraints, and some are targeting civil society in particular. Civil society has become less formal, less structured. Many CSOs have deregistered. Key leaders are in hiding, and there has been an increase in individuals and small groups providing informal support. There have been two shifts in the types of support. One, a shift towards providing basic needs and humanitarian support. And second, a shift away from involvement in more politically sensitive issues, or where that continues, relocating to ethnic controlled areas outside of the control of the military government or across borders to neighbouring countries. Some new networks have emerged, including networks of CSOs, CBOs, student unions and other groups coordinating community responses. However, communication and trust issues are hindering partnerships and coordination. Many CSOs and CBOs now work in clandestine mode and rely on existing networks and relationships, reflecting the difficulty of building trust in the current context. So this topic of trust just keeps coming up. You know, CSOs have reshaped and they're now operating in a very low trust environment. CSOs show three broad responses. One, survivalist. Some CSOs are trying to maintain operations based from Yangon or other Burma majority areas. These organisations aim to, one, ensure their survival, two, conduct useful short-term activities, and three, contribute to a return to, to democracy in the future. They do not actively engage with or conduct work that antagonises the military government, uh, but some are pragmatic about minimal levels of engagement if their survival demands it. So that's a survivalist. The second one is a transition uh, to service delivery. Organisations that previously focused on research, advocacy and rights have transitioned to delivering services and support to communities. And the third response on top of survivalism and transition to service delivery is reform and resist. Other organisations align more strongly with the democracy movement. Some have proactively deregistered and restructured themselves. They now operate under the radar of the military government and often under new names or as more informal groups. Their leaders may be in hiding in Myanmar or relocated to areas outside the country. Examples include several high-profile think tanks and research organisations. And given these dynamics, we, the, the authors, propose two key objectives with related strategies to underpin development partner support for civil society. First objective, support civil society in providing services and humanitarian aid to communities in need with a focus on strengthening resilience. Second objective, protect and strengthen democratic, inclusive and rights-based civic space and the resilience of civil society. And they come up with five strategies, depending on road donors' risk appetite. I won't go into details, but it's changing the approach to risk, expanding the range of partners, changing the way of transferring money, for example, paying stipends to individuals, much more flexibility and much less paperwork. In a situation as chaotic and scary as what's going on in uh, Myanmar right now, you can't insist on hitting all the targets and filling in all the forms. You've got to think much more on your feet and more flexibly about how you support civil society at this very scary time. And uh, a lot of people read that. It was very popular and I think it got good feedback. Third post was by Nicola Nixon, and, sorry, Nicola Nixon, Stefan Verhulst, Imran Martin and Philips J. Vermonti. And it's called Exploring a New Governance Agenda. What are the questions that matter? And the reason uh, I, I like this was that uh, they've crowdsourced what are the most important questions about governance, this big, sort of slightly vague area of, of questions and thinking about institutions and their importance to development. And um, the way they did this was um, 
to go out and ask people. So let me read a little bit about what they said. We live in an era marked by an unprecedented amount of data. Anyone who uses a mobile phone or access to the internet is generating vast streams of information. COVID-19 has only intensified this phenomenon. Although this data contains tremendous potential for positive social transformation, much of that potential goes unfulfilled. In the development context, one chief problem is that data initiatives are often driven by supply, i.e. what data or data solutions are available, rather than demand, what problems actually need solutions. Too many projects begin with the database, the app, the dashboard, beholden to the seduction of technology. And now many parts of the developing world are graveyards of tech pilots. As is well established in development theory, but not yet fully in practice, solution-driven governance interventions are destined to fail. So don't start with the app and then look for a problem, okay, basically. So this, the, 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 the group of organizations in, who, who came up with this set up something called the 100 Questions Initiative. The 100 Questions Initiative begins not by searching for what data is available, but by asking important questions about the biggest challenges societies and countries face, and then seeking more targeted and relevant data solutions. So they invited over 100 experts and practitioners in governance and data science from various organisations, companies and government agencies to identify what they see as the most pressing governance questions in their respective domains, and then they clustered them. And the result is the following 10 questions. And this is not in order of priority because what they want people to do is now go online and vote for which of these 10 are the most are the highest priority for them to do their data solutions or approach to. So number one, what is the relationship between transparency of government performance and public trust in government institutions? So transparency and trust discuss. Number two, which populations or groups are and are not represented in data that is collected and used for formal government decision-making. So digital exclusion. Number three, if citizens have greater access to data and information, does that actually mobilize them to take action and engage politically? If so, under what circumstances does it happen? So just having more information doesn't necessarily lead to action. When does it? Number four, how are social media and digital communications platforms affecting the way people engage politically and the nature and quality of political debate? So what's the link between digital and politics? What are the key factors? Number five, what are the key factors contributing to effective civic engagement at national and local levels? What skills or incentives do citizens need to participate in public decision making? Number six, does open governance affect the accountability of those in power, facilitate public debate and participation, and lead to more inclusive, transparent and timely decision making? So does all this emphasis on putting all the data out in the public domain, on you know, freedom of information, blah, 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 does it actually make a difference to the way democracies or political systems function? Number seven, how can democracies achieve inclusion more effectively in terms of both process, how decisions are made, whose voices count, and outcomes, how resources, prosperity and well-being are distributed? Number eight, how does the level of community monitoring, transparency of government budget and expenditure at different administrative levels affect the quality of public service delivery? Number nine, which factors play the biggest role in determining differences in institutional capacity and performance of government agencies? So some of these go way beyond data, clearly. And number 10, how has democratic regression going backwards, the erosion of democratic norms and standards, affected public service delivery? So these are big governance questions. What they want you to do is go on to a link, which is on the blog, and vote and rank 
these ones. And then they will sit down and think, okay, they'll do a kind of big uh, geek shop and get some uh, tech people in, 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 um, in the room and work out what existing data uh, can uh, help shed light on some of these big questions. So I thought I like that way. It's problem led, crowdsourced, and only then do you bring in the data uh, crunches. And I think that's a very nice uh, approach. Final post of the week was actually something suggested by a friend called Mary Sue Smirovsky. And apologies for misspelling uh, your name, Mary Sue. I do it every time I mention you on the blog. But she came back to me and said, that was a really interesting post. I missed it because I was on holiday. What about putting up a, a roundup of some of the best of the posts from August in particular? Because some people have apparently been going on a holiday despite COVID. Um, so I thought that sounds like a good idea. So I did a post on summer highlights. Um, and I looked at which ones have had the most hits um, over the summer and which ones I thought were really good. Um, so I came up with a few. So Top of the Pops, weirdly, was a very geeky and slightly contrarian post by another friend, Grant Teske, called In Praise of Log Frames. And he he's getting he got a bit fed up with the way that everybody just slags off these things called logical frameworks, um, which are the sort of core tool for describing projects in aid uh, for many aid agencies. And he managed to, uh, and he decided to just kick back against that. So I think in terms of getting hits on, on, on from poverty to power, techie, uh, yeah, aid techie sort of stuff always gets a lot of hits. Contrarian man bites dog type posts always gets hits. And Graham managed to do both and yeah, it came up with the pops. Another one that was very popular was uh, my boss, the uh, chief exec of Oxfam GB, Danny Shriskandaraja who wrote a piece on why Oxfam is talking about race. Um, and this was because uh, we got some bad press coverage for some of our some of the work we're doing around diversity and uh, 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 anti-racism. And Danny was uh, decided to push back and say, no, this is why we're doing this. And that got a lot of hits. Um, third thing I pointed to was this Bukavu series I mentioned right at the top of this post, uh, this um, talk, which is... Um, a group of uh, Congolese researchers who for two years have been talking about what it's like to be a researcher in the research supply chain and have written and sort of co-authored a bunch of really great posts on different aspects of being a researcher in a war-torn, poor, messy place like the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and not only that, but they then got a brilliant Congolese cartoonist, Tembo Cash, to come in and illustrate some of the themes and the, and the, the cartoons are just brilliant. So... Um, you know, examples were um, some of the you know, uh, good pieces have been one by Judith and Shobule on um, uh, the knowledge supply chain and the asymmetries of power uh, in, in the knowledge supply chain. Uh, but also some you know, great stuff on, on how what it's actually like doing research in a war zone. So, you know, uh, Jeremy Mapatano Byakumbwa um, talking about well, you know, you don't get paid that much as to be a research assistant, to be a data gatherer in a war zone. And the officials all ask you for beer money. So should you pay it or should you not? And basically, the answer is you have to pay it, but you can't tell anyone. So you have this kind of double set of accounts where actually some of the money is going to just pay people to be interviewed or pay officials to give you access to people to be interviewed. But you're not allowed to tell your you know, northern university or your donor that because that's not in the budget. And so you lead this slightly double life. So I thought that was really interesting. Uh, next, I put up Mary Sue's post, which uh, she wanted to uh, uh, wanted me to highlight, which was talk, talked about weathering the storm, defending institutions in post-coup Myanmar. 
by Will Paxton. Uh, finally, um, uh, no, uh, the next one was Pablo Suarez, who's one of my favorite uh, contributors to the blog. He's always interesting and original. Um, he came up with seven cartoons that could just help the IPCC save the planet. He's been doing this whole stream of work using cartoonists and humor to kind of reach out to new people and to expand the message of on climate change, which is his big thing. And so they took the IPCC report, this massive doorstop of technical analysis, and, and worked with a bunch of cartoonists to come up with cartoons illustrating the big themes of the IPCC report. So a great piece of work. And then finally, I'm, in, I'm involved with, I think I'm on the advisory group of this thing called Action for Empowerment and Accountability, um, which is a, a research consortium led by the Institute of Development Studies in, at the University of Sussex. And they, they have these big, you know, sessions, catch-up sessions where they present all the new research and they're producing, they're at the end of the, the project, so they're producing piles and piles of journal articles and books and all sorts of things. Um, and there's always something really interesting in what, they, what they're doing. The one I latched onto this time was um, some really interesting work on energy protests by Naeem Hussain and a bunch of other people looking at you know, a, a classic source of conflict and riots and protest, which is whenever transport prices, petrol prices go up, it all kicks off and it's been happening for decades. And they were looking at the, at the, at the politics of energy protests and drawing a distinction between the politics of energy, energy protests and how people talk about this in the rich countries, which is fuel subsidies are a bad thing. Fuel subsidies enshrine a carbon-based economy. Let's get rid of the fuel subsidies. Well, fine. That makes sense from the point of view of climate change. But when you actually do it, it usually leads to the most enormous fight uh, because poor people don't see many benefits from their governments in many countries. And one of the benefits they do see is fuel subsidies. So just draw, yeah, I think it's really good to raise that tension and put it in the minds of policymakers north and south so that you know, they don't just say, well, these people don't know what's good for them. They've got to just accept an end to fuel subsidies. We have to think a bit harder than that. Uh, I'm not going to say any more about that. You'll have to read the, the, the post for themselves. But it was, a, it was a nice, it was fun going back over the summer posts and seeing what, what's been there. There's been some good stuff. Okay, and on that note, I'm going to take my leave and slide gracefully into the weekend. And I hope you do the same too. Talk to you next week. Bye.